Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos, KQED's politics reporter. And I'm Scott Schaefer, KQED's politics editor. And today on The Breakdown, San Francisco supervisor and mayoral candidate, Jane Kim. Jane will join us in just a few minutes, but first... California scheming in Washington and apparently Iowa. Yeah, we're going to get to Iowa in a second, but it appears there's kind of a game of Thronesy thing playing out in Washington. Or will be, I will guess. Will be is it's the parlor game. You know, is, is Kevin McCarthy going to be the next speaker? Is he running? Uh, he got kind of a boost today. Steve Scalise said he's not going to challenge him. And we him. should explain this is because House Speaker Paul Ryan, who sort of took the job, uh, he wasn't fully in it, I think, at the beginning. Yeah, never, uh, said, has, never wanted it. Said he's stepping down. Um, to spend more time with his family. To spend more time. Can you, can you see the eye roll through Are there the... a lot of parents with teenage kids whose kids want to spend more time with them? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's the time where you should be at home with your kids <laughs> watching what they're doing. But, um, yeah, I think this is, like, clearly another sign of, of Trump's Washington. And, you know, you have a lot of Republicans who are choosing to kind of forego staying in office um, to give up, you know, one of the most powerful positions in the country. Quite it's, interesting. Yeah, it's so interesting, too. Things just don't turn out the way you think they're going to turn out in politics. I mean, I remember in, uh, you know, when Clinton got elected and Newt Gingrich blew up, you know, and yeah. then they had a couple of other speakers. I saw him who quoted has... in some stories, actually, yeah. about this. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's always, that's why in politics is interesting. Cause... But the good news for the Golden State is that it seems like whoever holds the House next year, it's there's a good chance the speaker could be from California. Right. Nancy Obviously. Pelosi, if uh, the Dems hold on. Of course, if they don't get it, if they don't, they don't take she may not. I think that may be the end for her as leader because they're kind of the sharks are circling. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's kind of interesting because, you know, California is such a blue state, obviously, gave Hillary Clinton, what, 3.3 million more votes. And here you've got this rising star in the Republican Party. And it's, it, you know, a, representing part of a state that's going in a completely different direction from the Republican Party. Well, and especially when you look at it from a policy perspective, I mean, McCarthy, I think, plays the game very well. Um, we should we should note that his uh, the character on House of Cards, now disgraced for totally different reasons, yeah. but was based partly because they came in and watched him at work because he's such a master politician. I think it's actually something yeah. he and Pelosi have in common. They're very good at the behind-the-scenes sort of member-driven yeah. politics. He is. I mean, he's a very very likable guy. You know, he's very affable. He's kind of kids around. He's not pretentious. And I think that's what fueled his rise. I think where he might get in trouble if he does become speaker, he's more of a politics guy, less of a policy guy. So he's going to have to have somebody else talking about the policy. And you have to ask, like, how would that play out? We have this, you know, the resistance is based here in California. So many of both Republicans in Congress and the president's priorities are basically sticking, you know, their finger in the eye of California and and the things that, you know, the overall electorate here has embraced. One of the things that, you know, we've always seen in leadership is this idea that you can bring the pork back and like those sorts of things. But McCarthy opposes. He's more about poking the pig. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what was he going to pr- bring it back for, for the high speed rail, high speed rail or the <laughs> yeah, twin I don't tunnels? Think so, no. so I think I think 
That is is definitely going to be fascinating. Um, and then another item caught your eye, Scott. Yeah, so I got a little press release this morning from a PR guy for Eric Garcetti. He the puts mayor on of his LA. glasses to Put read on my it glasses. directly. I'm not reading the press release, but it's like, <laughs> oh, guess what? LA Mayor Eric Garcetti is going to be in Iowa this weekend. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, of course, because, you know, homelessness and affordable housing have been solved. So he's on the road. And the schedule was so telling. He's meeting, uh, going to a carpenters, carpenters union. He's meeting with a Latino-Asian coalition. He is uh, having breakfast with firefighters. Really interesting. I mean, a mayor has never gone from mayor to the White House. But a Congress or a senator hadn't either, pre-Barack Obama, right? No, Jack Kennedy. Okay. Jack Kennedy was the last one. But, there, yeah, so here's... Trivia, I, I checked. Three mayors did become president, but they didn't go from mayor Straight. to president. Any guess who they are? Oh, gosh. Now you're going to Grover make Cleveland, who was okay. mayor of my hometown, Buffalo. Buffalo, New York. Talking proud. Bills, chicken wings. <laughs> Grover Cleveland. Calvin Coolidge. And then Andrew Johnson. I didn't know okay. that. He was mayor yeah. of a small I town I never would Tennessee. have guessed I, any yeah, of I'm those. Yeah, I'm a nerd. I'm, kind I'm of not very nerd. good at trivia. But, you know, I think that this is obviously just going to continue to fuel speculation that Garcetti, who is... We should say not the only Californian being uh, rumored to be eyeing a 2020 run. Um, you know, and I think this is something we're seeing. And I've, I've there's been chatter about it sort of nationally that a lot of these potential 2020 Democrat Democratic candidates are making uh, the pilgrimage, shall we say, to these um, early primary states where retail politics is huge. And there's some other mayors as well. Mitch Landrieu from New Orleans, who uh, gave a really compelling speech about race. He's got a book out now. He was the one that got the Confederate statues down, the memorials down in New Orleans. Uh, and then the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, whose name I can never pronounce, Pete Buttigieg, I think his name is, or something like that. <laughs> Openly gay, went to Harvard, Rhodes Scholar, you know, kind of an up-and-coming Democrat. Well, prior to last year, I think you will not, or 2016, never had a New York real estate developer catapulted their way into the White House either. So we live in strange times, and anything is certainly possible. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are saying, well, if he could become president, why why not me? And they, the question, they're probably right. Yeah, the question is, is Eric Garcetti really running for president, or is he running for vice president, I think? Yeah, or, you know, a, a number of other uh, offices that we've all talked about and will continue to. I mean, we, we've both interviewed him. He is a great talker. He is a very smart person. Um, but it does seem like he is doing a better job raising his profile outside of Los Angeles than inside the city. And that can be a mixed bag for mayors. Yeah, absolutely. And when you're mayor, you know, you don't get to pick the issues. The issues kind of pick you. And uh, if you're away to, at the wrong time, you know, when something happens, it can really catch up to you, you know. And so, you know, I think it's interesting. He is also, uh, I think, half Mexican-American. He's Jewish. He writes code for computers. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's an interesting guy. You yeah. Know? And, he, and you know, we've both interviewed him. He seems very comfortable with who he is. He's a good talker. He, we've, uh, we've invited him on the show. The, the, it's an open invitation, Merrick Garcetti. Maybe we should do it in Iowa. <laughs> uh, all right. We are going to go to a short break. Coming up next, we will be joined by San Francisco supervisor and mayoral candidate Jane Kim. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. 
Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions. Online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with my partner in crime, Marisa Lagos. And here with us in the studio, Jane Kim. She has been on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors since 2011. Now she's running for mayor of San Francisco. Welcome to the program, Jane Kim. Thank you so much for having me. And we have a little Ooh, music yeah. for you. Yeah, a little Wu-Tang. We wanted to get you in the mood here, and we know that this song, <laughs> Triumph by the Wu-Tang Clan, we, we heard it was your 2010 campaign anthem. It was. It was. I'm a little embarrassed, but I think my Why? campaign manager uh, released the mixtape. She might have sold you out a little she bit. Did. But Sunny, that I made thank for you, Sunny. our campaign team in 2010. Tell us about that band. Well, Wu-Tang is um, a hip-hop collective from New York City. And uh, this song, I, I still remember the summer it came out in 1997. It was huge. And um, it really kind of pop music radio trends. And this mm-hmm. is when you listen to radio for new right. music, right? No, was, I remember. This was, was like my high school anthem. That whole album was It was huge. slightly longer than the average radio song. Um, there was no chorus, no star MC. Um, it was a collective, and they really elevated the group above any individual MC. And that was the theme of our campaign. How long were you into music? Like, how did you get into music? Is this something that goes back to when you were a kid? I mean, when I was about in middle school, when I discovered radio, I, I really got into pop music. And I just, and I've always sang, actually. What? I, you sing? <laughs> don't ask a mic in front of you. <laughs> was that I, something like your parents fostered? Was music big no, in your house No, I just, ever since I was two or three, I was, I always sang all the time. And so I joined, you know, all my school choirs and auditioned for all the music-oriented things. I played piano for a little bit. Um, as a young adult, I learned bass guitar, and I was in an all-girl band called Strangely. Nice. Was that here in San Francisco? In San Francisco, yeah. We performed at Brainwash. Awesome. And at Bindlestiff and at Somart's. All, all venues in my district, you know, 10 years before I decide to run for office. So you were born in New York City. Your mm-hmm. parents um, were immigrants from Seoul, South Korea. Mm-hmm. And... I'm I'm curious, like, what was your childhood like growing up, especially as a city kid? Because I feel like we have this idea in America that, like, it's better to be out in the country. But I'm raising my kids in San Francisco, and I think it's great. Yeah, I have no concept of what it's like to grow up as a kid in a suburb. Um, New York City was my backyard. Uh, I never learned how to bike. I never learned how to drive. How old were you when you first re- rode the subway by yourself? 11. Okay. I was 11 when I started riding public transit by myself. Because um, that's when the yellow school bus program ended. Um, when you were young, it was probably not the best place to grow up. Yeah. I was inside most of the time. My parents didn't know about summer camp or after school program. I was either at home or at my mom's store. And so I watched a ton of TV and I read a lot, which was actually probably my saving grace was reading a ton of books because um, I had a lot of free time. It wasn't until I was probably 15 or 16 that New York City became this amazing place um, for a young person. And I had access um, to so many different cultural institutions and venues and communities. And at that point, New York City was an amazing place to grow up. But when I was younger, probably not so <laughs> and your parents, stimulating. Like yeah. a lot of uh, you know immigrants, they want their kids to do well. And, and sometimes that means become a doctor, a lawyer. I mean, what did your parents want you to do? 
doctor or lawyer. <laughs> is that I right? mean, they're pretty traditional, right? I, you know, I, I understand your mom is kind of a workaholic. She does not like closing that store. Although I hear your dad's kind of a super fan. My dad has become a super fan. He reads everything. He's probably listening to this, or he will listen to it later online. He Hi, also, Dad. unfortunately, reads all the comments. Oh, no. Which oh, I always try to dissuade oh, him no. from doing. <laughs> Dad, don't read the comments. <laughs> Do yourself a favor. Don't read them. I, you know, after I got on the board of supervisors, my dad admitted to me that, you know, it, in, under different circumstances, he might have wanted to run for office. Hmm. And he has um, been a super fan. He reads everything. And when he reads about policies that I'm introducing, he'll research and find articles about this policy in other cities and send it to me. Um, it's really been amazing. My father and I have become really close oh, um, through this through this job. And and it's it's been a it's been a journey for my parents and I because when I graduated from college and they were so proud that I graduated from Stanford, but then I went on to become a community organizer, and we fought for years. They could not understand why I was doing um, what I chose to do, and you know I joke about this a lot, particularly with Asian American students. But I, I really went to law school for my parents. I, I had zero inclination to go on my own. I ended up enjoying law school, so it, it worked out, although I never admitted that to my parents. <laughs> well, now they know. <laughs> now, now they know. <laughs> well, before we get to the law school part, though, I want to talk to you about, because you, you worked at um, CCDC, right, the Chinese... Chinatown, Chinatown. Community, community, community Development Corporation. Development. Yeah. Um, between Stanford and law school, is that right? Yes. I was and there so, for six years. Okay, so this is where I assume you sort of got your first taste of San Francisco politics. Mm -hmm. This was, um, you know, they're a huge institution in Chinatown. Did you meet um, like Rose Pack and people like that through there, Wait, just to be clear, there are no people like Rose Pack. She was one of a kind. That's true. But <laughs> there's a lot of people through CCDC that helped run your first campaigns and have been advisors, right? Yeah. I, I was I was so lucky to land a job at Chinatown CDC and Reverend Norman Fong hired me. Um, literally without my resume or anything, even though I had emailed, faxed, and mailed it to him. Um, he had never seen it. He interviewed me. He basically hired me on the spot. I don't think they can do that anymore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, I really cut my teeth in politics in Chinatown. I probably wouldn't be here right now running for office if I hadn't worked at Chinatown CDC. What was it like? Was there any kind of barrier to you, or did you have to kind of earn your stripes as a a Korean American mm -hmm. working in Chinatown, or was that what was that what was that difference like, if it existed at all? Well, our staff meetings were half in Cantonese, and so there were definitely <laughs> parts of staff meeting that I just wasn't, you know, engaged in. But I was hired to be the youth organizer, and so the language skill wasn't as necessary. I did eventually learn some food items in Cantonese, <laughs> kind of Always basic survival things, mode right. in Chinatown. And, um, yeah, I, I ended up working with um, our high school students for six years at, at the program. But, I mean, that uh, to Scott's point, I think that, you know, San Francisco obviously has a huge Asian-American population and a very big Chinese-American. But um, I think breaking into politics, there's been this assumption over the years that if you're Asian, like, you just get the vote of, of the Asian community. And I don't think that's always true. Um, I mean, what's it sort of been like for you to navigate those differences and then just like what like how like are you are you coming at it differently because of your experience growing up where you did so there is some commonality uh, amongst asian americans and the big voting groups here in san francisco are chinese then filipino and then vietnamese um, i would say 
And, and there definitely is some linkage and commonality. But I do think that the Asian American voting population is much more sophisticated than people realize. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting in 2011 to actually see several Asian American candidates running for mayor across the political spectrum, from Jeff Adachi to David Chu, Phil Ting, Ed Lee, and Leland Yee. Uh, Uh, That was an extraordinary run to watch as an Asian American. And to also see them span the political spectrum, I think, was important for a community. Mm -hmm. So I I do think that um, policies and politics matter. And I also think credibility matters a lot as well. Um, Chinese-American voters aren't just going to vote for any Chinese-American candidate. Um, They do want to see folks that have been in the community, that have been in the press, that have accomplished things. I do want to ask you about Rose Pack because she's obviously was a Chinatown power broker, uh, a a force of nature uh, person, controversial in in many places. And she was an ally of yours. She Maybe you were her protege to a certain extent. What did you learn from Rose Pack? Because... Personality-wise, the two of you are completely different. At least that's my impression. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see, uh, think that I have a little rose in me. Um, I have to say that coming to San Francisco as an Asian American was this really incredible experience. I remember moving here and seeing Asian Americans as security guards and police officers and, you know, and as elected officials. And so seeing that level of diversity here was something that I didn't grow up even in New York City, although yeah. that has changed now. Um, and meeting Rose, um, an Asian American woman and an immigrant who is trilingual um, as this incredible force of nature that people listen to and could move things in the private sector and the public sector was extraordinarily empowering. I was very scared of Rose uh, when I first met her. I think a lot of people are, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was 23, and I, I barely knew what to say to her. But I knew that she was important, and I knew that she fought for the community. And, you know, the one thing I always thought was really hard for her was that she was so misunderstood. Um, you know, I every time I talked to her, everything was about the community, about the seniors, about the kids. Um, even when I was on the school board, the only time she ever called me to ask me for something was because um, one of the kids of the Stockton merchants um, was hungry because, you know, the meals are so small. Um, in our in our elementary schools, as you probably know, and she was all she was incredibly concerned that he was hungry all the time, and you know what could I do about enhancing the food program at SFUSD? But I I miss her tremendously. She was someone that really also knew how to bring people together that did not want to be in the same room, and you certainly see a little bit of the kind of uh, I don't know the splits that have have occurred since her passing. So. You know, you came in when you ran for office for District 6 in uh, 2010. You were not sort of the favorite candidate of progressives. No, I was not. You did not have a lot of big endorsements. I think you surprised a lot of people by winning. Um, And and just thinking about what you said about Rose and bringing people together, I think critics might say that you go where the political winds blow. But I'm curious, like, do you see being able to cut a deal as one of as a strength of yours? Because that. Like, that goes both ways, right? Yeah, I would say on a certain level, negotiating and leadership did not come naturally to me. Um, I think Sunny actually wrote this to you in the email. But I really did grow up painfully shy and awkward. And for most of my life, I didn't have a lot of friends. Although in some ways that prepared me for politics. (laughs) (laughs) Especially as a supervisor. Get a dog, right? I, I still remember walking into the cafeteria in middle school and not knowing where to sit because I didn't have any friends. And so... You know, 
I, you know, 20 years later, did I ever think I'd be running for office? Absolutely not. I never even thought of myself as a leader. And so being in this role has really forced me to push myself in many ways. But I do remember um, growing up and always being so embarrassed because my mom was just the you know, the absolute haggler over everything. <laughs> you know, can I get a 50% discount? No. Can I get 40? No. Can I get 30, 20, 10? Can I, you know, can you, you can you take the tax off? And we're like at a department store, right? And the poor, <laughs> but it works, right? The poor cashier really had no power to negotiate with my mom. But, you know, I, I learned to, um, I learned what it meant to fight for your family and to, to never be embarrassed and never to stop asking. You know, so if they say no to the first one, ask, ask the next Do question. Do you like negotiating? I have learned to enjoy it. I've learned to enjoy it. And, um, you know, and, and it's great when you win. And, I, <laughs> and, and by the way, I, I've lost a lot, too. And I think that's a very important lesson that I've learned in politics is learning how to lose and, and how to approach loss. I, I think that is actually far harder than winning. What do you mean? Like, what, what did you learn from losing? Well, a couple of things. One, um, that actually loss is a very important part of winning in the end, that it may look like a loss today. Um, but in the long term, you may win the bigger fight. Um, but two, uh, you know, there there's just these days in politics that you're just at the bottom of the heap. Actually, that happens more often than 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 folks probably realize. And you just feel horrible. And no one's talking to you because they can tell your capital has just gone absolutely down the drain. Um, but those those days are temporary. And it reminds you when you're on top on the days that you do win that that is also temporary. We're talking with uh, San Francisco Supervisor Jane Kim. She's also a candidate for mayor. And uh, we should talk about that a little. Let's right? talk about that. You know, in fact, <laughs> let's, let's talk about that day uh, back. Was it February? I guess it was I don't when. Know. It seems like a year ago. When uh, London Breed was deposed, I guess you could say, replaced with uh, Mark Farrell. It was a. Uh, nail-biting, crazy kind of hearing, people like hours and hours of public testimony, uh, people's names getting invoked like Ron Conway, the angel investor, and uh, Hillary Ronan, the supervisor, giving a very tearful uh, speech about why we need to move on from the Willie Brown era in a sense. And there was, on the other side, all this talk that it's time for a woman of color to be mayor. You happen to be a woman of color, um, but your name didn't come up in that conversation at all. How did you feel as a woman of color, you know, watching all that unfold? You know, race has always played a very interesting role in our country. And I, I was an Asian American studies major, ethnic studies major. And and so I, I really studied kind of the role that Asian Americans, African Americans, Latinos, you know, have played in, in the making of this country. Um, but I don't think Asian Americans often get viewed as people of color. You know, mm -hmm. we often get kind of, we, we kind of fade into the background. And growing up in New York City, which really was a city of black and whiteness, right? And when you read the New York Times, everything was about being black or white. Um, I don't want to say you get used to it, but you're not often part of that dialogue. Um, but, you know, that being said, I still think that there is a tremendous pride in the Asian American community over the successes that we've had politically. The first candidate that I really ever worked on uh, was Matt Gonzalez for mayor in 2003. I was one of two Asian American organizers on his field team. And I remember pushing the campaign to um, do more visibility and more campaigning in the Richmond, the Sunset, and in Chinatown. And I remember the data folks were like, you know, we know that's the right thing to do, but the Asian American community is just not voting. 
and we have 30 days to win. We can't go out there and, you know, do two things at once, which actually makes sense. I mean, even today, we, we go out and hit likely voters, right? right. Um, you know, it's the off election years where you're trying to organize folks that aren't voting. And so 15 years later, um, to see every mayoral candidate hire Chinese-speaking field organizers with bilingual flyers and mailers and commercials in Chinese radio and television, I think that's that's been extraordinary. And it's certainly taught the Asian American community the power of voting. Did you have mixed feelings, though, that night, uh, replacing an African-American uh, acting mayor, interim mayor, I forget now what her title was, and replacing her with Mark Farrell, a white you know, venture capitalist. I mean, there was a lot of the optics of that were Who confusing. Who you clashed with were on con- a lot of policies. Yeah, they were confusing to a lot of people. Race and gender mean a lot, um, both to me and to this country, but so do politics. And I think that that conversation really got wash- washed out that evening. And so at the end of the day, my colleagues and I really want to see someone, well, A, that wasn't going to run for mayor. Um, this year. This year. That's right. This <laughs> that year. <might> <laughs> Um, but two, I think that, you know, we do have representatives that disagree on the pathway forward of what it means to make San Francisco a successful city. And and really, it, it, it comes down to values. And I think those that voted against um, or voted for Mark um, want to see a different set of values in Room 200. And certainly that was not exemplified by Mark. And, and, you know, people often ask me about this vote and they're like, oh, the progressives won that night. I was like, progressives didn't win that night. If progressives had won, Tom Amiano would be acting mayor or, you know, <laughs> Art Agnos would have been interim mayor. And, and by the way, we did reach out to many women of color, but no one wanted to touch that office with a 10 foot pole, frankly, yeah. and be involved in, you know, what kind of culminated. And so um, I think the best opportunity we had was to just ensure that that whoever was interim mayor wasn't going to run this year in this election cycle. So one of the biggest issues, I mean, you've been campaigning for several months. You've appeared at, as we discussed off air, like 80,000 mayoral forums with the other candidates. Um, And homelessness and the state of the streets is obviously, you know, top on everyone's mind. You rolled out a campaign theme, SF Loves Clean Streets, um, which is a departure, I would say, from a lot of the policies and things you focused on before. Um, But District 6 is also, you know, one of the dirtiest in the cities, if you want to call it that. It's historically been where we have the most homeless shelters Mm -hmm. and services and Mm -hmm. SROs. Um, I I guess I'm curious, like, why did you pick that as an issue? And what makes you think you can do something different since it has been such a challenge in the district you've represented for almost eight years? So I think every mayor in any city is judged by how clean their streets are, whether it's San Francisco, New York, Seattle. I think this is how mayors are judged. In fact, um, the front facing of of San Francisco public services is probably public works and MTA. When most people think about government, they think about muni, they think about how clean their streets are and potholes, right, more than anything else that we do. And that is really an executive branch function. I've spent the last seven years, not including school board, as a legislator. And so my job is really to draft policies and uh, talk about values and priorities within our budget, but I don't actually implement policy. That really is the role of the mayor. And I think that every candidate should be talking about street cleaning but, as part of their platform. But you're also kind of a policy wonk, you know, and, and you, <laughs> you take on issues like, you know, free city college 
and uh, taxes and payroll taxes and, you know, complicated things. Clean streets, it, it seems so out of sync with the kinds of things you've cared most about. But it also seems like the hardest in a way, too, to actually do something about. Well, yes and no. We know how to clean the streets. I think if you double the number of street cleaners, the, the, the streets are going to be cleaner. Um, and if you double the number of pit stops, a program which actually I started with Muhammad Nuru back in 2014, um, you know, you'll see less human waste and urine on the ground. So um, one of my community initiatives in the Tenderloin was addressing human feces. It's been a huge problem in the Tenderloin, and it was a big issue when I ran in 2010. It took us several years to formulate this process, um, but we finally came up with a mobile toilet program that's staffed by a person. Because the J.C. Deco bathrooms had become havens for drug activity and criminal activity, the residents didn't want to see any more of that. But they did want to see less human feces. But you know, our who doesn't? Who yeah. doesn't? But our residents of the Tenderloin are super compassionate. They know that people have nowhere to go, and so um, we spent two years working with Public Works, and we finally came up with this mobile toilet program called the Pit Stop. We piloted three in July of 2014, and in just in the first six months, we had a 60% reduction in steam cleaning requests. And as a side bonus, we saved 2,200 gallons of water a month during the drought. Well, I have a quick suggestion because okay. we're almost out of town. Yeah, but I don't want to end with theses and toilets. What are you listening <laughs> to right now? Right now, what are you listening to? You know, what's on your iPad, iPod, whatever, whatever is people listen to your phone. <laughs> Um, I've been listening to a lot of Janelle Monet, her right. new album, Make You Feel. Awesome. That way. Um, Daniel Caesar, this Canadian R&B singer who's amazing. All right. Cool. All right. We're going to have Got to leave the it there. Got the playlist. Thank you so much for coming in, Thanks Jane for coming. Karam. Thank you so much for having me. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. If you like what you heard, besides Wu-Tang Clan, but them too, was good. please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Katie Orr is our Sacramento reporter. Our producer, Guy Marzarati, just back from Ireland. And our engineer is Seal Muller. Ethan Lindsay is our managing editor. Holly Kernan is our vice president for news. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me at Scott Schaefer on Twitter. And quick shout out. This is Scott's 20th anniversary at KQED. Uh, yeah. We love him so yeah. much. I'm Marisa Lagos. That's it. We'll see you next time. Ciao. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.